This morning we are um, picking up our teaching series in Galatians, in Galatians chapter 4, beginning with verse 21. Now, a lot of Bible commentaries uh, agree that this is perhaps one of the most difficult passages in the book of Galatians. It's not easy to understand on a quick reading exactly what the Apostle Paul means to say here. Perhaps more accurately, we know in general terms what he's trying to say is just how he says it that trips us up. And for that reason, many people skip right over these verses so they can get to the good stuff in chapter 5, especially the part about the fruits of the Spirit. And I must admit that this passage doesn't sound, uh, does sound a little strange to our ears. Paul, Paul's form of teaching and argument is very Jewish, uh, very rabbinical, which means that the first century readers probably had no problems following his teaching. But that same style seems rather cold and clinical to us in the 21st century. And to make matters more challenging, there are parts of this passage that we understand and parts that seem to make no sense at all. Many of us know something about the Old Testament characters, Abraham and Sarah, and we probably know something about even Hagar and Ishmael. But what are we to make of a verse like, the end of verse, uh, chapter, or verse 24 and into 25, where it says, Hagar represents Mount Sinai, where people received the law that enslaved them, and now Jerusalem is just like Mount Sinai in Arabia because she and her children live in slavery to the law. Now, to me, it's really not quite clear what Paul's driving at when he goes from Hagar to Mount Sinai to Jerusalem to a woman enslaved with her children. You don't hear many messages preached on this verse of Scripture. I've never known anyone who took this verse and said, that's my life verse. And yet it's in the Bible, and I think there's a message in it for us. The key to this whole passage is found in verse 21. It says, tell me, you who want to live under the law, do you know what the law actually says? Now, Paul, Paul is arguing with those who want to take back want to go back to Judaism and take Jesus with them. He is addressing people who want a hybrid religion that is part Jewish and part Christian. They intend to believe in Jesus, but they also want to live under the law as a means of pleasing God and winning God's favor. And everything in this passage sorely is aimed at at those uh, confused believers who were tempted to go back to the law of Moses. His question is this, how uh, have you considered the implications of what you're about to do? Have you considered really going back to the Old Testament law? Seen from that background, this passage then slowly comes into focus. Paul is arguing from an Old Testament point of view with people who want to take Jesus with them back to an Old Testament way of life. But you can't do that. You can't have the law as a way of life, and, or, or you can't have both. You can't have the, the law as a way of life, and you can't have Jesus as a way of life. The two are different. In order to press the point home, he reminds them then of a familiar story. He draws an allegory from that story, and then he applies the allegory to the contemporary situation. So let's begin by looking at verse 21 through 23. Paul says, tell me, you who want to live under the law, Do you know what the law actually says? The scriptures say that Abraham had two sons, 
one from his slave wife and one from his freeborn wife. The son of the slave wife was born in a human attempt to bring about the fulfillment of God's promise. But the son of the freeborn wife was born as God's own fulfillment of his promise. Now the history behind this story is found in the book of Genesis. Basically it goes like this. Abraham was this very prosperous but pagan businessman who lived in a place called Ur of the Chaldees where God appeared to him told him to take his wife, Sarah, leave that land and go to a land that God would show him later. God also promised to give him descendants and make him a great nation. This was all well and good, except Abraham was 75 years old. Sarah was 65, and they had no children. In the course of time, they arrived in Canaan, the land that God had promised them, and 10 years passed, and still no son was born. Since the biological clock was ticking away, Sarah suggested that Abraham marry Hagar, Sarah's Egyptian maidservant. After some hesitation, Abraham agrees, and in due course, Hagar becomes pregnant, and a son named Ishmael is born. Now, it should be noted that Sarah's motives, uh, you know, on one level are good or noble, she concludes that she is now 75 years old. There's no way that she's ever going to have a baby. That was perfectly reasonable, perfectly human conclusion. So she and Abraham decide to take matters in their own hands, and they decide to help God out a little bit. But of course, God doesn't need our help. And whenever we try to help God, instead of waiting for God to reveal his plan and his way in his own time, things tend to get worse, not better. And that's exactly what happens here. Genesis 16 says that animosity arose between Sarah and Hagar. That figures these are two women sharing one man, and that usually doesn't work out real well. So young Ishmael grows up in an unhappy home situation. Fourteen years go by. Abraham is now 99. Sarah is 89. His body, the Bible says, is as good as dead. Her womb is shut up tight. There's no chance they're ever going to have a child together. But at precisely that point, God announces that Sarah will conceive and bear a son within a year. God revived the bodies of Abraham and Sarah, and in 12 months, Isaac was born. As Paul puts it, Ishmael was born the ordinary way, and Isaac was born as a result of the promise. Ishmael was born a slave because his mother was a slave. Isaac is born free because his mother was a free woman. That much of the biblical story is familiar to some of us. It's clear, it's clear why Paul uses this example. The Jews revered Abraham as their spiritual father as far as they were concerned. If you were a physical descendant of Abraham, then you were in good standing with God. As long as you, you could find Abraham somewhere back there in your family tree, you didn't need anything else. It was a matter of lineage, of heritage, of tracing your family tree. And if you could find Abraham somewhere in the mix, you were in God's family. Paul is saying, wait a minute, not so fast. God's family is made up of those who have a relationship with him by faith in Jesus Christ. It's a matter of faith, not a matter of your family tree. So this is the critical point to consider because millions of people today think that being right with God merely is a matter of spiritual pedigree. And we say things like, 
you know, I'm Catholic, so I'm good to go. Or I was baptized Presbyterian, so I'm going to heaven. Or my father was a Baptist pastor. That puts me in pretty good standing with God. Or we trust in our Lutheran heritage or our Episcopal connections or our Methodist church membership. But none of that is true. We don't go to heaven because we get credit for who our mother and father was or what they believe. That may help us here on earth, but it won't make a dime's difference in eternity. The problem in Galatia was this. The Judaizers taught that you either had to be a Jew or you had to act like a Jew to be in a right relationship with God. And that meant being circumcised, keeping the outward trappings of the law of Moses. And the Judaizers asked, who is your father? Thinking the lineage of Abraham. But Paul comes along with the question, who's your mother? And that brings us back to the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Isaac and Ishmael. The tricky part of this is that both times Abraham and Sarah believed God. When he took Hagar as his wife, he and Sarah believed that God had promised them uh, a descendant. But they also thought that God needed some help. The second time, Abraham and Sarah believed God alone, and Isaac was the result. The difference is this. Will we believe God alone, or do we think that we need to somehow help God out? Here are the facts of the story put in simple terms. We have one father, two mothers, two sons. One son is born the ordinary way, one by God's divine intervention. One son is born by spiritual compromise, the other son by God's promise. Ishmael's born according to works, trying to solve the problem of hum by human effort, and Isaac is born because Abraham and Sarah believed God's promise. The whole family is like this dysfunctional soap opera because self-effort and faith cannot live in harmony. What's Paul have to say about this? Look at verse 24. And he introduces here a New Testament allegory. These two women serve as an illustration of God's two covenants. The first woman, Hagar, represents Mount Sinai, where people received the law uh, that enslaved them. And now Jerusalem is like the Mount Sinai in Arabia because she and her children live in slavery to the law. But the other woman, Sarah, represents the heavenly Jerusalem. She is the free woman and she is our mother. As Isaiah said, Rejoice, O childless woman, you who have never given birth, break into a joyful shout, you who have never been in labor. For the desolate woman now has more children than the woman who lives with her husband. Now the easiest way to sort all of this out is, I think, for us to start where Paul starts, and that is with the two women and the two sons, all of them literal people who actually lived on earth and whose stories are told in the book of Genesis. What happens next is that Paul looks back at these historical people and he draws some conclusions. In essence, he sees a huge difference between Sarah and Hagar. Sarah represents grace, Hagar represents law. Sarah stands for trusting God alone, Hagar stands for trying to please God through our own efforts. And the sons born to them represent the way of faith, Isaac, or the way of works, Ishmael. Thus you have real people who represent certain spiritual truths. And when you boil it all down, Paul is saying that Sarah is in the line of faith, Hagar is in the line of works. 
And all humanity is either in one line or the other. There's no third line to choose from. Those who follow Hagar are the people who believe that religion and good works and self-effort will be enough to get us salvation and forgiveness and a place in heaven. And those who follow Sarah are the people who reject self-effort and have chosen to believe what God said, even if it flies in the face of what everybody else says and does. And the reference to Mount Sinai points us back to the giving of the law to Moses. The earthly Jerusalem is the Jerusalem of the first century, which was the world headquarters of Judaism with all its dependence on the law as a means of salvation. But he's saying no one can be saved by keeping the law. So the, the people who live in Jerusalem are enslaved by the law. They are trapped by demands that they will never be able to meet. The slave woman, Hagar, produces a slave son, Ishmael, who stands for everyone who is enslaved by the tyranny of the law as a means of salvation. Slavery comes from slavery and bondage from bondage. But by contrast, Sarah stands for the promise of God found in the gospel, which reveals to us the good news that Jesus died for our sins. He rose from the dead. The salvation he offers is free to anyone who will receive it by faith, and this salvation offers true and lasting freedom. The free woman produces a free child. Freedom comes from freedom. Now, finally, we come to verses 26 and 27, which is a quote from Isaiah chapter 54 in the Old Testament. They point to a coming day when the barren woman, Sarah, will rejoice because she has far more children than the woman with the husband, Hagar. The law cannot produce life but grace produces life abundant. Now we can sum up this whole allegory this way. One man had two sons by two different mothers. The two mothers represent two covenants, the covenant of law and the covenant of grace. One comes from earth, the other from heaven. Law produces bondage, grace produces freedom. That's the difference between being religious and being a Christ follower. Hagar and Ishmael stand for all those who want to help God out by doing good things to earn their salvation. Sarah and Isaac stand for all those who believe God's promise and are made right with God by faith alone. Now picture Abraham as the father of these two vast streams of humanity. And what starts as a purely personal family problem comes to signify the great division of humanity into two groups. Those who trust in God alone for salvation and those who trust in their works to help them to earn that salvation. And from this one man, the two lines of humanity come forth. And the line of works and self-effort looks like this. Abraham's, Hagar, Ishmael, Mount Sinai, the law, earthly Jerusalem, bondage, and eventually death. The line of faith looks like this. Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Mount Zion, the gospel, grace, faith in Christ, freedom, forgiveness, salvation, and ultimately heaven. Note that Abraham stands at the head of both of those lines. And that's why it's not enough to be Abraham's offspring. We also must be a son or a daughter of Sarah. So the question is not who's your daddy, but who's your mama? You know, Who is your mother? Look at... Uh, Chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 28. And Paul says, And you, dear brothers and sisters, are children of the promise. 
just like Isaac. But you are now being persecuted by those who want to keep the law, want you to keep the law, just as Ishmael, the child born by human effort, persecuted Isaac, the child born by the power of the Spirit. But what do the Scriptures say about that? Get rid of the slave and her son, for the son of the slave woman will not share the inheritance with the free woman's son. So, dear brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman. We are children of the free woman. Now, in these last few verses of this text, uh, Paul, I think, draws four contemporary applications. The first one is this. We are children of the promise, not of works. And he says it twice in verses 28 and 31. We who believe in Jesus are descendants of Abraham through Isaac. We are not the descendants of Ishmael. We have believed God's promise by faith, and on that basis alone, heaven is our reward. Secondly, we should expect persecution from those who practice the religion of works. Paul come, uh, paints uh, uh, Paul's point that he's painting and picturing here comes from Genesis chapter 21, where we learn that Ishmael mocked young Isaac, deriding him, humiliating him. Religious people do the same thing today. The renowned preacher John Stott points out that our chief opposition almost always comes not from people outside the church, non-believers, pagans, but people who are religious, people who are arrogant, prideful, egotistical, and believe that their own brand of faith or religion is the only true religion. No one hates God's grace more uh, than people who are trying to save themselves by their own good works. Nominal Christians tend to hate true Christ followers because they can't understand them and they feel rejected by them. Our greatest opposition comes not from atheists, but people who give the appearance of deep religious faith. Remember, it was religious Jews who hated Jesus the most. Not the indifferent Romans, but the religious elite of Jerusalem. Paul's greatest enemies were not the pagan philosophers of Athens. It was fanatical religious Jews. The descendants of Hagar are always threatened by the descendants of Sarah because Sarah's children live by faith, Hagar's by works. They hate Sarah's children because faith always threatens those who think they can do something to earn their salvation. And even when they go to church, they go mostly out of compulsion, not out of love. That's why so many religious people today are still very lost. They're enslaved by the law that demands that they keep on working, keep on trying, keep on doing, always trying to do enough to please God. And the end result is always failure. It's inner bondage, it's frustration, and ultimately spiritual death. Our greatest opposition comes from those who claim to practice religion, but do it in the name of tolerance, diversity, pluralism, whatever. They hate people of faith because we stand for truth, for salvation that only comes through Christ. Now think about some of the great social issues of our day that have divided the church. Two of them being abortion and gay rights that have divided the church for many, many years. These are issues that over the last 20 to even 40 years have shaken the foundations of the church world and still do today. 
They've caused several religious groups and churches to split, largely because uh, many denominations and religious people have seemingly compromised long moral-held positions. And I mention these two great issues because most of the conflict and divisions in the church today don't come from atheists and agnostics and people who generally ignore us and don't take us seriously, but from within the church. The church can't seem to agree on its, with itself, and we can't seem to get along. We can't seem to work these things out. The same is true for a number of other issues. Divisions have come about in the church of Jesus Christ because there are some who have rejected the truth of God's word in favor of court cultural norms. And there are others who won't join in because they see it as a compromise to foundational biblical truth. Paul makes it very clear. He says, don't be surprised by the persecution that comes from religious people. It started with Ishmael and it continues to this day. Here's the third application. We must not compromise with those who do not accept the truth of God's word. It was Sarah who told Abraham to throw Hagar and Ishmael out of the house. On one level, that seems to us very cruel, very unfair. But on a deeper level, Sarah knew what she was doing. The promise of God had to be preserved at all costs. And if Hagar and Ishmael stayed in the family, there would have been unending strife and someone had to go. If she had let Ishmael live with Isaac, there would have been nothing but trouble. In the church, we need to be careful not to compromise on core doctrines of our faith, such as the Bible as the Word of God, Jesus as the Son of God, salvation by grace through faith, salvation in Christ, universal sinfulness, the truth of the book of Genesis, the sanctity of human life, God's design for marriage, purity, moral purity, the literal resurrection of Christ, the atonement of Jesus, the miracles, the, the virgin birth of Jesus. We must stand for these truths even if it costs us popularity and personal advancement. And then fourth, we who are persecuted also inherit the promise of God. This is the flip side of persecution. Though we may be despised and rejected by other people, we are accepted by God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul said, we are pressed on every side by troubles, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're hunted down, but we're never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we're not destroyed. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he continues this line of thinking. He says, we serve God whether, pe whether people, of honor, people honor us or despise us, whether they slander us or praise us. We are honest but they call us imposters. We are ignored even though we are well known. We live close to death, but we are still alive. We've been beaten, but not killed. Our hearts ache, but we always have joy. We are poor, but we, are given spiritual, we, we give spiritual riches to others. We own nothing, and yet we have everything. And that's really the paradox of the Christian life. We are hated, and yet loved. We are poor, and yet we're rich. We are misunderstood uh, some of the time, and yet we're understood by God. We are abandoned, but never forsaken. We may be counted losers by the world, by those who live by self-effort. We reject the world, and are re uh, we, we are rejected by the world, and yet the world wants what we have, and it secretly uh, longs for what for what we have. 
So it goes that the followers of Sarah will never be understood by the followers of Hagar. Ishmael is always going to hate Isaac, even while he envies him and wishes that he too could be a child of the promise. Christians have no reason to envy anyone else. No one is as free as we are. Others may excel in business and rise to the top of the entertainment world. Not many of us may ever be super rich, and often we are poorer than our friends who do not know God. How do we feel about that? Well, sometimes the temptation to envy the wicked in the world is almost overwhelming, and other people may seem to have a lot more fun and a lot more friends. But Paul's saying, why should we envy them? Ishmael got the whole world. Isaac got the Lord. Pretty good deal. Isaac lived by faith. Those who don't know Jesus are still enslaved to sin. They are no better off than their slave mother, Hagar. Riches and worldly pleasure is all they're ever going to get. When it come, and that gnawing emptiness inside uh, is, is never going to be satisfied with what this world offers. And when they die, things are going to get worse. So we're told not to envy the wicked, not even for a moment. Their happiness is only temporary. Our joy is eternal. And those who know Jesus have something that cannot be seen or measured, but nonetheless very real. We are forgiven, we're redeemed, we're justified, we're accepted, we're given a new name and a new life, we're adopted, we're reconciled, we're empowered, filled, gifted, called, commissioned, we're numbered with the saints, we're protected by the angels, and after we die, we get heaven. Pretty good deal, huh? So if you've been whining and complaining a lot lately, get over it. If you've been moaning about your life a lot lately, stop it. If you've been casting an eye at some unbelievers and that seem to have a lot more than you do, remember that Scripture says no eye has yet seen or ear heard or has it entered the heart of any of us what God has prepared for those who love us. The best is yet to come. Let me wrap up with a simple but profound question. Who is your mother? Is it Hagar or Sarah? Are you born of the flesh or are you born of the spirit? Do you think that there's some way you can help God out by the things that you do? If you think you can somehow be good enough to merit salvation, or if you think that salvation is partly what God does and partly what you do, you are still a child of slavery. The Ishmaels of this world trust in themselves. The Isaacs of this world trust in God alone. There are two different streams of humanity, and only two, despite all the superficial differences of skin color, culture, language, place of birth, and all of that, in God's eyes, the whole human race is divided into two groups, Ishmael or Isaac. We are the children of Hagar or the children of Sarah. And everyone in the world is descended spiritually from one of those two women. You are either a slave to works or you have been set free by God's grace. So, who's your mama? Let's pray. God, free us from slavery to the law, to live in the freedom of Christ. Free us from being slaves to the world, to experience the joy of knowing Jesus. Help us to follow your path to the way that leads to life and to faith. We pray through Christ our Lord.